Hey folks, Scott Weingar here, and this is the MCrit Podcast. Today, MCrit team member, CC nerd, EM nerd, Rory Spiegel takes us through the basics of APRV for lung rescue. Now, most of you who have not used this mode before probably will not be putting this on as a regular mode of ventilation, but all of you should have in your back pocket the settings you need to rescue a patient who is failing on conventional vent settings, whether you're in the ED or the ICU. You should know how to start a patient on this mode to rescue them while waiting for someone who may be more experienced to come and talk to you or take over for the later titration of this. But you should be able to put a patient on and start stabilizing them immediately. Everyone should know how to do this. And so we will take you through it today. Rory put a great paper on the topic in the uh, EM Clinics of North America that's linked in the show notes, and you can check that out. So I wanted to get him on to talk about that. Now, before we get into the show, uh, I've mentioned, uh, I think last podcast, a conference I'm doing with my good buddy and partner in crime in my coaching business, Rob Orman. Uh, We're doing a conference in Sedona, uh, Arizona, which is friggin' beautiful. We're doing it January 13th to 15th at the Enchantment Resort, which is like one of those insane like luxury resorts, you know, the kind we should feel really bad about for uh, going to. Uh, but it is friggin' beautiful. And, you know, one of the comments I got, well, a couple of comments I got uh, when I had recommended this conference is, uh, we have we go to the site, we have no idea what you guys are actually teaching. We can't sign up for this. So we've put up a sample of the lectures we're going to be having. There's going to be a lot more than what you'll see on the site. And you can find the site link in the show notes, but um, just some of the lectures, nonviolent communication, uh, pillars of health, using stress reduction, nutrition, and exercise to keep healthy as an ED or critical care doc, sleep optimization. I will be teaching my getting shit done series, uh, introduction to breath work, uh, dealing with inner criticism, inner criticism, self-compassion, burnout, etc. Unpacking the day to leave work behind. All of the non-clinical stuff that will keep you functional and performing well as a resuscitative doctor. So uh, check it out. Just go to the show notes. And um, in the mailing list, I'm going to put a discount code. We were just given a discount code. uh, That'll be in the mailing list. So if you want to get the discount code for this conference, go to the mailing list. All right, enough. You don't want to hear any more about this than I've already given you what you want to hear about is APRV for lung rescue. And so let's get right into it. Insert screeching sound. Screech! Oh, you thought we were getting right into it, but as usual, when we offer a free open access medical education, you have to listen to the beating of me telling you that you should not be getting the free version of this. You should sign up for the MCRIM membership so you don't have to listen to me drone on about the fact that you are missing out on the best resuscitative care information for your patients, that you are not, unless you're reading the 63 journals now uh, that I read each month to get the most comprehensive sources of information that you need to take care of your patients. Unless you're already doing that, then you're missing out by not being an MCRIM member. Uh, it's cheap. It's tax deductible. It's uh, CME reimbursable. You get CME for all the podcasts. Just go to mcrit.org slash join and consider becoming a member so you never have to listen to me say this again. That alone should be worth the money to not have to listen to me drone on about this fact that you are failing your patients and the practice that you want to have by not becoming an MCRIT member. Okay, so now for real, let's get right into the show. All right. So Rory Spiegel, EM nerd, CC nerd, you just recently written an article for EM Clinics of North America, which was going to be the quintessential review on APRV for lung rescue. 
I guess your audience was emergency physicians, but how many emergency physicians do you think are actually going to be using APRV? Um, I think it's a small group, and I, I think that's how we wrote it, right? Because like even myself, who uses APRV a, a great deal upstairs, very rarely uses APRV in the emergency department, and most of that is the logistical headaches that come with the use of APRV and your the time you need to spend with that patient, which yeah. you usually don't have in the emergency department. Yep, that's fair. Now. In my mind, this should have probably been called APRV colon TCAV for the emergency physician. I'll pop in here just for listeners that aren't familiar with all these abbreviations. TCAV is time-controlled adaptive ventilation. It is a form of APRV that really just means you're doing it Nader Habashi style. Now, Nader Habashi uh, really diverted Down's original APRV to his own mode or his own uh, philosophy of setting APRV. And I did an entire podcast with him. It's been discussed at other places on the podcast. Uh, But when you see APRV TCAV, it really is a um, circumscribed set of uh, philosophies on setting APRV. All right, back into the show. And you chose not to do that. What was the choice on that one? I think it was just, I like the brevity of the title more than anything. But yeah, it's certainly the style of APRV I use is Nader Habashi's TCAP. And in fact, in the paper, you went through very nicely why there's been heterogeneity in the benefits in the literature on it. And your conclusion and mine as well is that they were not using the TCAF method, which we've discussed yeah. in other places on the podcast. Yeah. And I've often been chastised by my intensivists at previous shops when I'd send a patient upstairs on TCAV APRV, and they're like, why is this T-low so small? We <laughs> always set it to 0.8 on all our patients. And I'm like, I don't even know where to begin <laughs> to explain to you why that's not a good comment on our care. So you listed a bunch of ventilators that have things that look like APRV. You yeah. were very diplomatic in not calling out the ones you actually think are good, but this is a place where you could speak your mind. Which ventilators that you've been you've had experience with actually do good APRV rather than just having it as a type? Yeah, so essentially in my mind, like there's perfect APRV with a Draeger and then there's APRV that you can get done. And what you need to be able to do APRV safely is a ventilator that will allow you to control your T-low. And there's a number of ventilators that will kick your T-low out as the patient starts trying to breathe. So as long as they're paralyzed or not participating, your T-low is fine. But as soon as they try to start participating in ventilation, they're able to exhale longer than you want to. And it results in just dumping really large release volumes, de-recruiting the patient and just leading to dangerous ventilation. In my experience, servos are terrible at this. They always will kick out your T-low. Some of the older PBs will do it as well. The newer models I've had some reasonably good success with. And during our, because we at our shop have PBs and servos. And so during our COVID crisis, we would, on the patients that were paralyzed or not participating, we often would use the older PBs and the servos. But as we asked them to breathe, we would trade out our ventilators. Interesting. Yeah. And the other issue was how easy it is to spontaneously breathe on the vent, which really goes to the valve structure. And that was a hidden problem for certain ventilators. What's been your experience with that? When you breathe on a Draeger, you could feel it. There's no resistance whatsoever to spontaneous breathing. Yeah, I haven't had much problem on the PBs when they're breathing. I'm not sure most people need acute tube compensation. You have the ability to do it, but most of the problems I find when people aren't breathing is just you're not at FRC. Mm-hmm. And it, when you get them there, e- either ventilator does a reasonably good job on CPAP. And what 
Rory's alluding to for folks that don't remember their pulmonary physio or are not intensivist is when you actually have recruited the lung, you've got a reasonable functional residual capacity, it's much easier to spontaneously breathe. The analogy we always bring up is if you have a balloon that's already partially inflated, it's very easy to add more air to it. If you have a balloon that's flat, it takes a lot of force to actually open that balloon initially. Spontaneous breathing is much easier when you're fully recruited. Does that adequately go with it, Rory? Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. Now, you did have some patients that APRV is not great on. Why don't you discuss the two in your paper, and then I'll ask some questions on some additional ones and see what you think. The big thing, I think the patients that I envision you using APRV in the emergency department are these refractory hypoxemia patients. And so patients who you put on the ventilator and their SATs are still low despite you trying to up your PEEP a reasonable amount. And the first thing you have to do in that point is just identify your shunt, right? Because there's essentially two types of shunts. There's double lung shunt and single lung shunt. And this is a concept that amazes me. I learned this under you, Scott, when I was a fellow, but it amazed me how many people still don't know this. And the single lung shunt is just, they just notoriously hate PEEP. And the more you turn up the PEEP, the more they desaturate. And so you'll often have situations where people keep turning up the PEEP, keeps going down and they call for an ECMO consult and you simply just turn the PEEP down to two and they get better. And because they hate PEEP, they just hate APRV and they won't do well on it. Once you start recruiting that down lung a little bit, whether it's with a bronch or laying them on their side and doing chest PT, there's times when you can start applying APRV to them at that point. I'm not sure if you need to. It's a pretty quick vent run at that point usually, and you've got them recruited and it's not as big a deal. So those are the big ones that I find really try to die on you when you put them on APRV. Totally. Now let's talk about some that, because that was really the only avoidance patient group you had in the study. But yeah. Let's talk about some others. Now- I absolutely know you can do APRV on an obstructive patient. We've proven it, and it, but it almost seems like we are proving it. Is it really worthwhile to use APRV on a bad obstructive case? I don't think so. And there's, I think COPD gets a little complicated because there's patients with COPD who have ARDS and they most certainly benefit from APRV. You have to be careful on the backside when their compliance improved where you're setting your T low. But the ones who I think when you say obstructive are having clinically obstructive pathology on the ventilator and asthmatics are the classic ones. And it just doesn't make sense to me. You can certainly do it, but this is an incredibly fraught patient. And if you mess the ventilator up a little, they really try to die on you. And not only that, they break relatively quickly within a day or so, and then they get off the ventilator very quickly as well. And so APRV, in my mind, is a bridge to getting someone back to FRC and having them breathe on their own. Asthma are way above FRC. And once they break, it's pretty easy to keep them there and get them breathing on their own and get the tube out. And so I think it's mostly, like you said, we're proving we can do it rather than we need to. Yep, agree. All right. Now, this one is complex because there's a lot of interplay on what's good and bad here. But right heart failure. Yeah. Think? So I don't think it does anything for you for right heart failure in general, but it's not, it certainly doesn't hurt right heart failure. And in the right situation, it certainly helps it. And what I mean by that is the right heart functions best at FRC and your pulmonary resistance does best when the lungs are where they're supposed to be. There's a number of studies looking at this showing that RV pressures and RV function improves using a swan when you put someone on APRV and do it right. If you do it wrong, just like you do anything wrong on the ventilator, the RV is going to hate you. But when you do it 
that the patients do much better. And I don't think you have to be scared of it. I think there's moments early on, if it's a really sick patient, and what I mean by that is if their compliance is really bad and they have a really small lung, when you put someone on APRV, you over-distend the good lung instantly, but recruitment takes time. And so you, what you'll see initially is a drop in their pressure, a drop in their SAT, an increase in their presser requirements. And then over the course of minutes to hours, that all flips depending on how sick they are, really determines how much of a rocky course that is. And if you've waited really long, where their like lung volumes are like less than 100 cc's, it's almost impossible to get them on safely. And that's when ECMO becomes probably the choice. But overall, I'm not scared by RV function and APRV. No, I think you've, uh, you've picked the banner case for when it, it is potentially deleterious and everything yeah. else probably works out nicely. I used to hate APRV, not TCAV, in traumatic brain injury patients that didn't have bad lung injuries as well because we really did not have great control of CO2. The way we were taught APRV, and you'll prove that is no longer the case in the current teaching, was that you had very extended out T highs, and it was very difficult to get a patient down to the range of CO2s we wanted. But that doesn't seem to be an issue anymore with our current thinking. I take that off the list of patients I would not use APRV on. I think it's fine for TBI patients now. Yeah, Which, I would just add that a lot of them just need CPAP. If their lungs are already at FRC and you're not using the recruits, there's the TBIs who've had pretty significant resuscitation and are on their way to ARDFs or in it that I'll put on APRV. But a lot of them, if their lungs are functioning, I just have them on CPAP and allow them to breathe on their own. Even the patients who may be on an opioid drip and therefore have a drift up in their CO2, you don't right. feel the need to tightly control that carbon dioxide? Yeah, no. So those patients, I will. If they really, if, you've, if you're taking away their central drive to breathe, then yes, release volumes are right, fair. All right, so it rolls nicely into settings, and you nicely said in the article, there's only five, which makes things easier. It's not the hundred dials of a conventional ventilator mode, but it's even less than that when we really think about it. Yep. And I think the audience has a passing understanding of APRV at this point, so we're not going to go into the nitty-gritty. If you want the nitty-gritty, go to Rory's article and read it, and then you'll get an understanding. But there's really less than five settings because the PLO is zero. So that takes one right there. And I don't think people should be setting the TLO anymore. Like, I think this was the major innovation on ventilators. I know Drager does it. I don't know if any of the others have figured this out yet, but humans should not be setting the T-low. They should set what they want in terms of the percentage, but human setting T-low is one of the biggest downsides of APRV because it's where people screw up. What do you think about that comment? That's interesting. Most of the ventilators, I have to set my own T-low. And I have seen people get in trouble when the ventilator sets it themselves. And what I mean by that is I find once you've found what your T-low setting should be, you just leave it there. And as a patient gets better, you will start trapping a higher and higher percentage of their peak expiratory flow. Meaning even if you started at 75, as they start getting better, you will trap at 80 and 85. And as long as you're controlling their CO2, which if you're getting closer to FRC and improving VQ matching, you, you usually are. Usually the problem with controlling F CO2 is early in the disease process. I rather keep it there. If you have it on the automatic settings, it will br bring it out and get it larger and larger, keeping it at 75, but your release volume will be larger. And every once in a while, I've had people present cases where that has got them into trouble when they de-recruit some patients. Wow, this is like a hidden Rory tip that was completely out of the paper. And really flies sure. in the face of what we were initially taught. And we were at the bedside at shock trauma hour after hour, making sure that we readjusted the T-low such that the patient would be adapted to their recruitment as they got their lungs better and better towards FRC. 
But you, and it's interesting you say that because it, I think, ameliorates some of the problems of people getting, as they get more compliant, larger release volumes. So that, how come this wasn't in the paper, Rory, if this is your practice? Yeah. So the paper, again, was built for emergency physicians. And so when I envision them using APRV, it's the initial setup and it's that initial rescue period of time. And so if you look at the paper, there's not a lot on the spontaneous breathing part of APRV, and there's not a lot on the actual titration and getting people off the ventilator because that just is not going to be useful in this setting. And I just, I actually say this to my fellows, if you're thinking about changing your T-low, just stop and think again, and then stop and think again. And I would rather, like, once you said it, just leave it there. Like, you're far less likely to get into trouble than if you just try to extend it out. That alone made this worth the interview. And I'm curious, have you vetted this by Nader? What does he say about this? I don't want to speak for Nader, but the few times I've talked to him, his big thing is you just can't extend it past 75%. You have to protect de-recruitment. And Again, I don't like speaking for him, but from my understanding, if you can get away with higher T lows and control your CO2, because the only downside is your release volumes are slightly less and your CO2, you're ventilating, you're bulk ventilating less often. But as long as your CO2s are controlled, it's an added bonus that you're just recruiting more. All right. I like that. All right. And I'm deliberately skipping P high. We'll come back to it. Let's okay. talk about T high. Now, it used to be that regardless of the patient's carbon dioxide level, even if you wanted to blow them down a bit, we'd start with extended T highs. So we'd never go below four. And we really push to keep them even stretched longer than that. And the big sea change in TCAV that has come down in the past few years is that you can go lower. You could go even down to 1.5 seconds if you needed to, especially initially when you're just putting a patient on for rescue. So tell us about setting this. Yeah, my practice, the big change here was during COVID, where if you're putting people on APRV with COVID, you you just couldn't put their initial settings, their T high was almost always less than two. And what you find is as long as the T low is set, they will recruit. It it really almost doesn't matter how often you release, as long as you're recruit as long as you're preventing the de-recruitment with the T low. And so once that became a comfortable way of practicing, I just found it really much easier to control their CO2. And because on not because I care what their CO2 goes to, but because on the back end, when I want them to breathe, if I've spent three or four days allowing their CO2 to go up, their kidneys have adapted, they're just not going to breathe for me for a long time. And once you start actually using your T high to meet their minute ventilation needs, it's really not hard to control CO2 at all. And I think it also is a really nice way of watching how they progressed. For me, one of the best markers of recruitment and knowing that I'm improving is just a passive drop in my minute ventilation needs. And what I mean by that is you have someone on a normal, on, on traditional settings and their minute ventilation requirements to maintain a normal CO2 is somewhere around 14 or 15, so incredibly high. You put them on APRV, even with your best APRV settings, you usually can get someone with a minute ventilation of 10 to 12. And so you've lost some minute ventilation. But what is, despite losing some minute ventilation, you actually improve your CO2 and simply because of recruitment and improving matching. Over the course of the next few hours to days, what is a drop in the minute ventilation you require to maintain a normal CO2. And so you're able to passively stretch your T high without asking the patient to breathe at all. This is just a moment where you're just stretching it because their lung is improving passively with the APRV. And so how I tell people to set the T high is, you could I, we put a little equation in the, in the article, but the way I simply do it is I look at what their minute ventilation needs are on their standard mode of ventilation. 
And then I flip them to APRV and twiddle my dial until my T high gets to the point where I'm close to that. Because I think that's the simplest way because your release volume is going to change. It's not going to be the same as what your title volume was on your normal setting. All right. Now, Initial setting of FiO2 seems fairly easy. I think it gets a little more interesting as you start asking how to titrate later on, hour, two hours in between the P high and the FiO2. But for now, where are you going to stick them when you first start them off? Uh, so it depends on the patient, but essentially just to get a saturation of 94%. You could go lower, but then you're asking people to walk into the room way more frequently. If you look at the data on hyperoxemia, one, it doesn't really seem that we've really identified a real risk, but 94% seems to be perfectly fine. Yeah, agreed. Okay, so now we really have taken out four of the five with really easy, yeah. almost automaton level of thinking here. So the PLO is zero. The TLO is you started off at whatever cuts you off at 75% of your peak expiratory flow rate. And then you just leave it there for the patient's entire course in Rory Spiegel's yeah. world. Your T high is just make it the equivalent of a respiratory rate and pick whatever the patient needs to dial in their CO2, not going below a second, but with that as a barrier, then whatever you need. FiO2, start them off of whatever it takes to get your SATs above 90 at least, but you're saying 94% is a very nice place to be. All right. So now we have only one that you really have to think about a lot, the P high. So tell me about that. So the PR is the hardest. I, there's no, I think this is the art of APRV and this is one of the points that is the hardest to teach because- there, there is no just one number that's going to work. The general thinking is you take your plateau pressure and go somewhere between minus two to plus two above or below your plateau pressure. And that's a reasonable place to start. And then you look and see what you get. And what I mean by that is your release volume. So when the patient's passive and not breathing, your release volume is basically going to be dictated by your P high, the patient's compliance of their lung and your T low can't touch your T low. That's what you've set it at. And so your the patient's compliance with the lung is what it is. And so your P high is essentially the only thing left you have to manipulate. And essentially it should be something where it's in a range where they could survive, right? You should have a release volume that is reasonable proximity to the tidal volume you had prior. And the caveat here is when they're sick, it's almost always less right? Like when they are sick, the release volume you're going to get as long as you set your T low at the correct setting is going to be way less than 60 per kg. And you just have to take that in mind when you think about what minute ventilation needs they require. So that might give you an initial setting. As they start to change, whether for better or for worse, how are you adjusting your P high and your FiO2? Yeah. So the FiO2 I just set towards the SAT and the easier one I think to talk about is if they improve. And so as they're improving, they're obviously FiO2 requirements are going to go down as the lung improves. I don't focus on it much. Honestly, I think it's a rather late marker and improvement. And the things I'm focusing on when I'm titrating my vent are my release volumes. And so the patients who improve, you'll just see their release volumes just grow larger spontaneously. The trapping pressure and what this is, your expiratory hold pressure, when you hold, and rather than doing an inspiratory hold, like in a traditional mode, you'll do an expiratory hold, which is essentially the pressure in the lung at the end of T low. And so it's, while you set your P low at zero, the lung never reaches it there. And if you wanna know where the lung is at the end of T low, you can just do a, an expiratory pause. As a patient improves, that should grow. So when you put someone in APRV, you often have very low trapping pressure, somewhere around six, eight. But as they start re-recruiting, you'll see that go up and up. 
your P low minus your trapping pressure is your driving pressure. And so as the trapping pressure increases, your driving pressure decreases, hence improving the compliance of your lung. And then the last thing I look for is my CO2. Improvements in the ability to maintain CO2 with decreasing minute ventilations, I think is one of the best markers of improving on APRV. So I don't focus on my FiO2. I simply just will turn it down as I can maintain oxygen levels with less FiO2 requirement. When I start changing my P high is based on those other three markers. It's tough. It's a very holistic process. The best examples I can give are our COVID patients, where once I've decided I've set a P high that I think is right, and what I mean is it's a P high, I think it's going to get me back to FRC. It's going to recruit the lung. And I think a part that people don't understand is you don't have to be exact, right? Like you can be up one, down one, the patient's going to recruit. The 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 resulting pressure when you finally get them back to FRC is actually a lot lower than P high. It's just the pressure you need to start getting them there. And as long as you're not way off, you're probably okay. I actually keep my P high setting until I've woken them up and I'm asking them to breathe most of the time. Every once in a while, my guy was probably a little too high, so I drop it. But most of the time, I keep it until I watch them breathe because I find it's much easier to titrate it when they're spontaneously breathing because your markers of you made a mistake are far more obvious when someone's breathing than when you're just waiting for them to de-recruit on the ventilator, which takes time. Whereas if you watch them breathe, if they're breathing and you think they're breathing comfortably, you turn down your P high and they start dropping their tidal volumes and increasing their respiratory rate, much like you'd see with a, an SBT, you've probably turned it down too quickly and you can go back. And so I set it usually somewhere around the, the plateau pressure and then I leave it there until I've got them spontaneously breathing, and then I'll start titrating it down based on how they're doing clinically. If they start doing worse, sometimes I go up on the P high, but a lot of the times I'm tightening my T low because I want to trap more. And that's usually what I'm doing. And sometimes I'll do them together because if I go down on my T low, my release volume gets smaller. And so sometimes I have to go up on my P high just to make up for that. We talked about transitioning a patient from a conventional mode of ventilation just using the plateau as our guidance for the P-high. What if you were going to just primarily start a patient? How do you know you got it right? Where are you setting that initially? Are you just giving a arbitrary number and looking at how they respond? Or do you have a different regimen for patients you're primarily starting on APRV? Yeah, I think it's a comfort with the mode. It's an understanding of your patient, right? Like we say there's no P high that's wrong. It has to make sense with the patient in front of you. And so if you have a 40 kilogram female, if your P high is like 40, you have to ask yourself what's happening here because a P high of 40 just shouldn't happen in that patient versus you've got a large 300 kilogram male in ARDS, then a P high of 55 is, is not unreasonable. And so I'll look at the patient and I'll make a call. And it's usually your P highs are somewhere between 24 and 32, somewhere in there. And then as you said it, you just look at your release volumes and see if it's making sense with the patient you're seeing in front of you. One of the things about APRV is it requires you just to have a more holistic understanding of the patient and the lung and what's happening. And so at all times, you usually have a better understanding of where the lung is in their disease process. And the P high should make sense with the patient that you're seeing. One of the criticisms that APRV gets that you address nicely in the paper is, oh my God, their release volumes are too high. We're actually causing lung injury by APRV. Address that like you did in the paper. 
Yeah, this is one of my favorite topics. And it starts with the idea is what is an appropriate title volume? And you find like everyone like somehow gets like evidence-based religion when they start talking about APRV, though the rest of our practice so often has very little evidence to support there's it. There's no evidence for APRV <laughs> as a mode, but there's right. surely evidence for other modes. Right? That's the first step. If you think about it, there's literally no mode of ventilation that has evidence to support it. And often what people are citing is ARMA, which is not a study looking at a mode of ventilation, but rather looking at a tidal volume. And so ARMA, for those of, you, of our listeners who haven't read it in a while, was essentially a study looking at people with severe ARDS, a disease process where you know a lot of your lung is de-recruited and you have a very small amount of lung participating in ventilation. And what they did was randomize people with small lungs to receive a small tidal volume, 6 cc's per kg, or a large tidal volume, 12 cc's per kg. And they saw what happened. And not surprisingly, the patients who got the small tidal volume appropriate for the small size lung did better. There was like an 8.8 .8 absolute difference in mortality. But what it doesn't actually look at is an empiric 6 cc's per kg better than individually titrating the tidal volume on the vent to the size of the patient's lung. And we all do this. Even if you're like an ARMA believer, as soon as patient starts getting better and they're bucking your vent, you actually start to become more relaxed on your tidal volume. And your reasoning is their lung has improved. They now can accept more tidal volume. What APRV does is because the release volume is based on your T low and the compliance curve of the lung, essentially stiffer lungs are going to release more quickly. And so you're going to reach equilibrium or you're going to reach total lung collapse quicker. Now you're not letting them completely collapse. You're cutting that off at 75%, but that 75% is going to happen much quicker in someone with a smaller lung. And so their release volume is going to be tiny. And like we said, when you put sick patients on APRV, your initial release volumes are often much smaller than the six cc's per kg. They improve. And as that lung improves, as those release volumes just spontaneously increase. And, and at some point they get over six and often over eight cc's per kg. And a lot of people get scared at that point. But in my mind, it's perfectly safe because the lung has the capacity to do that now. And this is an important note. What you'll see is as those release volumes improve, you'll also see their driving pressure just improves dramatically. And so what you have is you've got a patient with 10 cc's per kg of release volumes, but their driving pressure is three or something incredibly small. And so I would much rather have a patient like that than a patient at four cc's per kg, but a driving pressure of 24, which is often what you see when you initially put people on APRV. I think if you're going to do it right, you just can't be scared by that. You just have to be okay with those release volumes getting larger as long as it makes sense with the patient in front of you. Yeah. And Provent trial demonstrated this perfectly. In patients without bad lung injury who actually were really sick, they tolerated 10 cc's per kg with no problem. And in fact, I had a veering towards doing better at that. As the patients get better, they're no longer baby lungs and they don't necessarily need the same restrictive things that were in the ARMA trial. And ARMA didn't look at the intermediary type right. volumes either, right? Like they, we know six is better than 12 and that makes intrinsic sense. We don't know right. necessarily that in patients, six is better than nine. Right. We don't have that evidence. There's three other lung protective studies published before ARMA that looked at six compared to nine compared to 10 and found no benefit. Meaning, I, again, I don't think there is an empiric number, but you're far less likely to do harm when those numbers are smaller in people with small lungs. Now, why not, though, just put that patient on CPAP at that point and just eliminate all of the doubters? Is there any reason, once a patient's gotten to that point in their bettering of their lungs, 
to keep them on APRV rather than just shifting them over? No, I think there's a transition period where you're not quite FRC, but you have pretty good release volumes and pretty good driving pressures. And the way I play it is as a patient recruits, you'll see those improvements in minute ventilation. And at some point, you'll get to a T high where your minute ventilation is somewhere between four and six, right? Which is essentially a normal minute ventilation for all of us, depending on our size. And if you ask them to, if you stretch them more, you're going to ask them to have to breathe spontaneously. I don't ask them to breathe spontaneously until I've got the minute ventilation towards normal. Because in my mind, that's when you have, you've gotten close to FRC because you've reestablished normal minute ventilation requirements. And so there's just a period before that. And as you're starting to ask people to breathe, you're waking them up. They don't have fully reestablished their respiratory drive where you're just like half an APRV and half in CPAP and you're still having these high release volumes, but you just ignore them. And yeah, the sooner you breach them to CPAP, the less that becomes an issue. Though I will add people like are really okay with an APRV of 22 over zero with a T high of 12, which is essentially CPAP, right? You're dropping out every once in a while. But for the most part, the patient's doing the work. As soon as you switch them to a CPAP level of 22, everyone starts flipping out because a CPAP level of 22 seems really high, but an APRV level of P high of 22 seems okay. Okay, what question should I have asked you that I have not? I think the big thing, especially if we're talking about this for emergency physicians, is the, while this is a spontaneous mode of ventilation, in sick people early on in their disease, they should not be breathing spontaneously. And so one of the mistakes, two of the mistakes I often see, or the first one is, if this patient is paralyzed, I can't put them on APRV because they have to be breathing spontaneously. And that's just entirely false. Yes, you want people to be breathing spontaneously because that means their lung has the volume and the health to do it. But if they're really sick, they're just not ready to breathe on their own. And often early in the disease, they can be paralyzed. They don't have to be. I use paralysis and APRV when you can't suppress the respiratory drive, when their lung is so small and their respiratory drive is so strong. This is something you saw in COVID early on, right? Where they just had a terrible respiratory drive. And before you recruited their lung, you had to paralyze them for a short period of time. And the other end of that is I see people allowing people to try to breathe on the ventilator, setting their T high at four and trying to allow people to spontaneously breathe to make up the rest of that minute ventilation. And in an early disease state, it's just not safe. Their lungs are too small and you just see these massive swings in intrathoracic pressure and that has to be suppressed away and you have to do most of the breathing for them in the early disease. And so from an emergency medicine perspective, I think mostly APRV is going to be used as a passive mode of ventilation. It only becomes spontaneous later on in the disease state. All right. Can't thank you enough for coming on, Rory. Hopefully, yeah, thank uh, you so much. We'll see some additional EM nerd posts from you in the future, but yes, if not, we yeah. still love you. <laughs> thank you. I appreciate it. So there you go, folks. Check out the show notes at mcrit.org slash 335. This has been Scott Weingart for the MCRIT podcast saying bye-bye. Oh, before I say goodbye, uh, MCRIT coaching, medicine coaching. Uh, I, I try to feature one thing we uh, coach on each month. And so the one I'm going to mention today that if you have a behavioral issue, you know, you don't want to talk to people about this, uh, but you could talk to me as a confidential coach. If you are getting in trouble with the nurses for the dumb crap you say, or the patients are continuously lobbing complaints at you to your clinical director, and you don't quite know why, but you've been told you need to change your behavior, or you know, your job may be at risk. Um, if you have something you just keeps happening and you keep getting in trouble for, uh, I can help you talk through that and figure out ways to avoid it and figure out to 
really delve into the depths of the problem. So if you're interested in that, just come on over to mcrit.org slash coaching and uh, get in touch and we could work through that issue. All right, so for now, for real, goodbye.